Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I will be in this passage today in verses 26 uh, through 46 as we look at the Lord's Supper part two. The Lord's Supper part two, as I've done in the past few weeks, I'll share the outline here on the screen before we dive in together. I shared it over email as well, so hopefully you were able to track that. Again this week, we'll see this central truth that the Lord's Supper is a declaration that Jesus' grace is sufficient for us. It was sufficient for the disciples on this day, and it's sufficient for us as well. As we track through this, we'll see three main sections. First, grace. That's verses 26 through 30. And that's grace particularly in the Lord's Supper as Jesus offers it to his disciples. Secondly, then we'll see overconfidence on the part of the disciples in verses 31 through 35. Overconfidence that they enter uh, and they forget how much they need Christ. And then thirdly, related to their overconfidence, we'll see the disciples' failure. Failure in the end in verses 36 through 46. So we'll spend about half our time working through this, and then the second half of our time together answering some questions about the Lord's Supper, namely these four. How often should we observe it? What kind of attitude should we have when we come to take it? Thirdly, who should take it? And fourthly, what good does it do? So how often we should observe it, what kind of attitude we should have, who should take it, and then fourthly, what good does it do? Uh, So with this stage being set, I'm going to go ahead and begin reading now in Matthew 26, verse 26. We'll read down for now through verse 35. So Matthew 26, 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Well, last week we looked at Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. Today we're going to build off of that and see how the supper prepared the disciples for what followed. So we've got Judas here, Peter and the rest of the disciples. Judas about to betray Jesus. Peter denying that he'll deny Jesus, but he will deny Jesus. And then we get the disciples falling asleep during prayer meeting. All in all, it's not the disciples' best day. And in the midst of Christ's life, it's one of the darker periods. Yet in the midst of all of this darkness, there's a beautiful note of grace in verses 26 through 30. We looked at these verses together last week, and so we'll be rather quick in our overview here. But the placement of the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26 is a message of grace in the midst of all that's going on. It's a message of grace to the disciples, and it's a message of grace to us today. Jesus is in the midst of the darkest week of his life. Disciples, they're going to flee. And yet Jesus offers them, in the midst of their failure, a word of grace. 
he will never leave them. Even when he's gone and send it back to heaven, he'll be with them as they gather around the table and remember him in the Lord's Supper. And he tells them as they celebrate this first Lord's Supper that the bread and cup is a sign that salvation is accomplished. That as he says in verse 28, the blood of our Savior is poured out for many. Isaiah 53 tells us the same thing, that Jesus will bear the sins of many. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. So the Lord's Supper is itself a proclamation of the good news that Jesus died to save sinners. So like the disciples, when we come to the table of the Lord, we do so as sinners who need God's grace and who receive God's grace through faith in Christ. And in the midst of this reminder of grace, Peter proves how dangerous it is to forget our need of grace. Secondly, in verses 30 through 35, we see overconfidence. Now, the disciples are stuffed. They've just celebrated the first Lord's Supper with Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus is still physically present with them. Now, if you remember, this supper was kind of the last official Passover and the first Lord's Supper. And after the Passover meal, Jews sit around the table and they remember together God's work of redemption in their nation. And the last thing they would do is they would close this time of remembering by singing a hymn together. And that's what we find Jesus and his disciples doing. So we've got a series of psalms that that Jews would sing together at Passover. And so when Jesus gets up from the table, it's probably with the the words of this traditional psalm, Psalm 118, ringing in his ears. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. So even as he goes towards suffering and death, he's got this reminder that resurrection is coming. He will not die, but will live. Yet before the resurrection, Jesus reaches the Mount of Olives and he speaks terribly sobering words in verse 31. You will all fall away. Now, Peter, I mean, Peter's brave. He's outspoken and he speaks right up. If they all fall away, I will never fall away. Now, we're tempted to just picture Peter in this moment, but I also like to imagine the other disciples. <laughs> you can imagine how, how this line goes over with, with the other 11 disciples. I mean, uh, they're, they're there and they're offended now that Peter has thrown them under the bus. So he, they're like, yeah, they might fail, but Jesus, I will never fail. The disciples are sort of climbing over one another to prove that they're bigger, better, and better than the others. But Jesus responds this time directly to Peter, even more soberly in verse 34. Truly I tell you, he says, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, Peter denies it even more strongly and says, if I must die with you, even if it means dying, I will not deny you. Yet at the end, before the end of the night, it is Jesus that Peter is denying. Here he denies Jesus' words, but in that moment, he denies Jesus himself. Now, lest we're too hard on Peter, it's not just Peter. In verse 35, we see they all said the same. None of them would deny him. But by the end, not a single disciple remains with Jesus. Uh, Look down in your Bible to verse 50. They all left him and fled. Not one remained. 
I mean, what a failure this is on the part of the disciples. And what a failure this seems to be of Jesus as a leader. Not a single follower remains. What we see here is that personal determination cannot keep us from failing. I mean, if you look down the disciples, they're 12 for 12. All fail miserably. Yet in the end, only one of them, Judas, stands condemned. Why is this? Because the mark of Jesus' disciples isn't ultimately personal determination or confidence or success. It's repentance and faith in Christ. You see, all 12 men are great sinners, but only 11 repent. Judas never repents and thus dies in his sin. If Peter had persisted in his self-sufficient determination, refusing to turn from his sin, he would have ended in the same place as Judas. In the book of Acts, and by this time Peter is a leader in the early church, He's leading the disciples now. Jesus has ascended back to heaven. Peter, it's a church in Jerusalem, and he stands up and he speaks a psalm of condemnation, what we sometimes call an imprecatory psalm, about Judas and says, may his camp be desolate and that there be no one to dwell in it. I mean, by this time, only a few days removed from this moment, Peter is a hero. Judas is condemned because Peter turned from his self-determination. I mean, what encouragement in this? I mean, when we fail, it's so easy to stare at our failure. But I think what we see here in the life of Peter is that we should look in the midst of our failure for the hand of God in our failures and let it move us to repentance. Now, this isn't a way of excusing sin, saying it's okay, Peter sinned, we can all, that's, that's not the point. It is a way, though, of thinking about our sin, of processing our sin, in a way that exalts the grace of Christ rather than stands condemned, burdened under the weight of our sin. Rather than depending on our ability to stop sinning, looking to the grace of Christ that extends to Peter here. So this week, if you find yourself in the same position where words come out of your mouth, words that you've spoken before in a way that you've spoken and that you shouldn't speak, don't let that failure crush you. Rather, let it point you to dependence on Jesus, the one who bore our sins. Or maybe you're here, you're a little younger, and I mean, kindness to your brother or to your sister is not your forte. And you've been told by your parents over and over and over again, you need to be kind. And what do you do? You fail again and again to be kind. Let it convince you that you need Jesus to help you be kind. Or when you're empty and you have no hope, remember Peter, broken, weeping at the end of all this as a miserable failure. But don't stop there. Don't just look to Peter. Lift your eyes and look to Jesus. And remember this meal, breaking bread with brothers and sisters, remembering the grace of Christ offered in this meal. And then get back up, depending more on Jesus than you did before. So we have the grace in the supper, the disciples over confidence, and then we move to failure by the disciples, verses 20, uh, 36 through 46. Matthew 26, 36 through 46, we've got failure. So if you'll read along, we'll read these verses now. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. 
remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand, and in walks Judas. Now, some moments of failure are more infamous than others. Judas betraying Jesus, Peter denying Christ. But the failure of the disciples actually starts before that. It's their failure to acknowledge their utter dependence on the Lord, and then to live out that dependence in prayer. I mean, they're about to be put into the furnace. But first, Jesus takes them to a garden. Now, Jesus' expectations here are very clear and very basic. Verse 36, sit here while I go over there and pray. Mark tells us also, Jesus had one other part. He said, stay awake. In verse 41, after the disciples have drifted off to sleep, Jesus tells Peter to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, there are times where maybe Jesus asks a lot of us, but he doesn't ask a lot of the disciples in this particular story. So Jesus asks a very basic level of commitment, but somehow the disciples bring a level of commitment that's even lower than this baseline expectation. Not once, not twice, but three times, Jesus comes and finds them sleeping. They have one job, stay awake, but they can't do it. They fail in their one basic task. Now, on the other hand, the disciples have just eaten a Passover feast. I mean, their stomachs are full. It's after midnight at this point. They've had a full week of conflict, travel in and out of the city, a celebration. It's the middle of the night, and Jesus calls a prayer meeting. I mean, there could be a better time for this, Jesus. You know, maybe tomorrow morning if we have, after we've had a chance to sleep off all that lamb that we just ate. But Jesus knows what's coming. So the disciples, this no doubt feels ridiculous. Uh, verse 43 tells us their eyes are, are heavy, literally burdened or weighed down as if there's something weighing them down. And when I read this passage, I can't help but think uh, of our son Joseph, particularly uh, with uh, a, a year or two ago. He, I mean, it didn't matter where he was. When he hit a wall, he's, he's 100 miles an hour or zero. And when he hits that wall, it's like, you can't, I mean, you could throw anything in front of him. You cannot keep that kid awake in that moment. His eyes are burdened, and you can just see it. You can, it's like some, some heavyweight sitting on his eyelids. And that's the way the text describes the disciples here. Their eyes are weighed down. They're heavy, burdened. But Jesus, tired like the disciples, doesn't fall asleep because he's desperate. He knows what's coming. Part of the reason the disciples fall asleep is because they're brimming with confidence. They're comfortable, they're complacent. I mean, just before this, we find every disciple saying confidently, he's going to re remain loyal. It's, it's not a problem, he's got it. 
Yet John tells us in his gospel that at this same meal, the disciples have another argument about who's going to be the greatest in Jesus's kingdom. I mean, these are confident dudes. And their self-confidence moves them to comfortable complacency. They even ignore Jesus's warnings. And Peter's there bragging. I mean, he's the SEAL Team 6 of the disciples. He's the best of the best. Uh, just before he falls asleep on his watch. If everyone else fails, Peter's like, I will not fail you. Well, if there's anything that describes much of American Christianity, it's low expectations, low commitments, that are coupled with a remarkably high degree of self-confidence. I mean, if we take our Bibles and see what true discipleship looks like in the life of Christ, and then take that as a measuring stick and hold it up against much of what passes for Christianity, we'd see that we're missing the mark. Our Christianity looks like bare minimum commitment, which isn't true discipleship. I mean, every culture has its blind spot. And when 21st century Christianity is weighed on the scales of history, it's possible that it may look more like a Christianized version of the culture around us rather than a reflection of the culture of Christ and all that he requires of us. But in this story, Jesus is a central figure. He takes all the disciples with him to the garden, verse 36. And then in verse 37, he takes Peter, James, and John aside with him to pray. But then he goes and talks to his father alone. The language in verse 38 is, is remarkably strong. My soul is sorrowful, even to death. Jesus is deeply grieved as he senses what's coming. We see his desperation again in verse 39. He falls on his face and prays. He doesn't kneel and pray calmly. He's almost overcome by what's about to happen. Jesus had just offered a cup of grace to his disciples. By drinking that cup, they remember his death till he returns. But here Jesus talks about a different cup, verse 39. Father, he says, let this cup pass from me. Now the Bible throughout the Old Testament uses the image of a cup to picture God's anger against sin, pouring as, as a cup pouring out a liquid, God pouring out his anger in judgment on sin. Isaiah 51 verse 22 calls this, the cup of staggering, the bowl of God's wrath. Now, it's not easy for us to comprehend the way the Trinity works, Father, Son, Spirit. But there's never been a single moment from eternity past till now when the Father, Son, and Spirit haven't existed in perfect love with each other. I mean, think of the moment in life when you felt the most loved. Maybe that moment you got engaged and you can think back to that or on your wedding day, or maybe you were sick and ailing and your spouse took care of you. Or maybe it was for you the first time one of your children said to you, you said, I love you, and they said, I love you back. Or maybe you're a kid and you can remember a time you messed up really, really badly. And your mom or your dad loved you and accepted you anyway. Think about that feeling, the, the, I mean, the, the warmest feeling, the fuzziest feeling, the most uh, sensitive feeling that you can remember, magnify that 10,000 times. Imagine that there's never been a time when you haven't felt that warm, perfect love, and then replace that. 
So not only do we take away this feeling of perfect love, we put in its place the most utter revulsion, the most utter hatred, the hottest fire of God's anger against sin. So Jesus is taking the sin of the world on his shoulders, and he'll be punished for all our sins. The grief he's experiencing in this moment isn't merely for the physical agony of the cross, although there's no doubt that that was torturous. It's for the abandonment of the son by his father, as his father will turn his back on him for the sake of our sins. I mean, how terrible our sin is. How costly our sin is. I mean, see Jesus' grief and terror in this moment, and let it move you to repentance over your sin. I mean, kids, see God's anger against Jesus. And realize that part of this anger is your disobedience to your parents and let it move you to obey and honor your parents. And yet, there's no doubt that in a group like this, some sit here, perhaps without knowing Jesus. And if you're here and you don't know Christ through faith, see the anger of God against sin and let it move you gladly to repentance and faith in Christ. God is absolutely just. He is all-knowing, and there's not a single sin he misses. He will punish every sin. Either he'll punish you for your sin, or he'll punish your sin in Christ. He doesn't miss a single one. And yet all we need to do is turn from our sin, cry out to God for mercy, and trust Jesus to save us, and he will. If you haven't done this, if you haven't yet embraced God's love for you in Christ, would you trust Jesus today? We've walked through this passage, and this brings us now to uh, four questions about the Lord's Supper, questions about the Lord's Supper. The first is, how often should we observe it? How often should we observe it? Now, there's a variety of practice in Christian churches, but the practice in the early church seemed to be weekly. The practice of the early church seemed to be weekly. Now, Paul, in his account of this in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and Luke in Luke chapter 22, make it clear that this is something we're supposed to do continually. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And the emphasis of the verb, do this, it is an ongoing thing. Be doing this. In other words, it's not something you do once, it's something you do continually. It's not something we should do rarely. Rather, it's something that Jesus's followers do when they gather together as a way of experiencing Jesus's presence in a spiritual way. Acts 2 verse 42 tells us that this is the regular weekly practice of the church when they worship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So they're doing these things and doing this when they gather for worship. God's Word tells us to gather for worship and to take the Lord's Supper. And we understand both commands by seeing what God says about weekly worship and how the early church practiced these things, which was every week. Now, having said all that, I've been a member in good conscience of Baptist churches all my life, at least as long as I've been old enough to place faith in Christ. And, and in those churches, we practice the Lord's Supper uh, sometimes quarterly, sometimes monthly, and sometimes weekly. But based on this, I generally tell people I have a soft conviction, as in I don't think it's like the 11th commandment, but a soft conviction about practicing it weekly, because that seems to be the closest to what we see actually the early church doing and what we see in Scripture. So how often? Uh, secondly, what attitude should we have? And I got a series of words I'm going I'm to use here, but humble, grateful, joyful, worshipful. In other words, celebratory, not dreading. 
Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 warns us against taking the supper in an unworthy manner. So it's good for us to examine ourselves, to see if we're cherishing sin in our hearts unrepentantly. But think about this first supper. Think about the group of people that Jesus offers this meal to. He doesn't offer it to a group of worthy people, but to a room full of people, and not a single one of them deserves it. They will all fail. One is outright evil. The rest are cowards who flee. What this teaches us is that the Lord's Supper, like salvation, isn't a reward we earn. It's a grace that Christ gives to those who are undeserving. So what's the only thing that can disqualify us? It's a failure to repent of our sin. Paul says to examine our hearts, to be sure we don't come in an unworthy manner. But in one sense, we're all unworthy. And the only credential that we have is a heart that's repenting of sin. The Lord's Supper is a gift of God's grace to us. It's a word to us that Jesus is with us, that his grace will sustain us even when we're headed to our worst possible day as his disciples. I mean, Jesus gives this to his disciples. They've had a lot of failures, but he gives this to them just before their worst failure. So for the rest of their lives, this meal, when they eat it, week after week after week, reminds them of their failures but also how little their failures matter in light of the grace of Jesus. So because of Jesus' grace in this, our attitude should be celebration and hope, not dread or fear, almost like I don't want to do that, and certainly not being bored with it because it's, it's a reminder of what Jesus has done. So how often, what attitude? Thirdly, who should take it? What we see is baptized believers in good relationship with a local church. Baptized believers in good relationship with a local church. So the consistent practice of the church in Acts and then throughout church history has been for baptized believers to take the Lord's Supper. They're baptized and they take part in this meal. And sometimes what we call fencing the table, that is telling people who shouldn't take it. Well, or preventing someone from taking it. That's either for those who don't profess faith in Christ, they don't believe the gospel, or uh, for people who are under church discipline, the church, uh, because of either they don't believe the gospel or because they don't live out the gospel in a, in a very blatant way, the church can't affirm their profession of faith and so would say, no, you shouldn't take the supper. And this has been what Christian churches have practiced uh, throughout the centuries. And 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that this happens when you come together as a church. In other words, it happens in the assembly of the church. It shouldn't just happen normally uh, with individuals and homes or small groups. Now, this, of course, doesn't forbid us from caring for those who are unable to assemble with the church. Uh, for example, uh, shut-ins who also need the Lord's Supper or, or, or other people in a case where they need to receive this grace from Christ. But it does mean that's something that happens, not just kind of independently as Christians, but under the care and direction of a local church. So, fourthly, what good does it do? What good does it do? And there are four things that it does for us. It helps us remember the gospel. It helps us proclaim the gospel. It promotes unity in the gospel, and it grows us in the gospel. Remember, proclaim, promote unity, and grow us in the gospel. So first, it helps us remember the gospel. Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of him. So for those who know Christ by faith, taking communion is a way to vividly remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I think the Lord's Supper, is, it's a unique gift. Because much of Christian learning is reading God's word, hearing 
God's word. But the Lord's Supper just combines so many learning styles. We've got verbal and oral, so both speaking and listening. Uh, the words of institution, do this in remembrance of me. We've got visual, the image of the, the bread and the cup as reminders of the body and blood of Christ. We've got physical or kinesthetic or something that you can touch or feel or taste. And it's even social. It's something that we do together. I think it's so cool that Jesus has given us all these things in this one meal. It remembers the gospel. Secondly, it proclaims the gospel. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, if you've ever shared communion uh, with people from another language or another culture, you know how powerful this is. So either if you've been in a missions context overseas or if you've have had visitors, imagine that we were um, actually in our sanctuary this morning and that we had a visitor with us from Zambia. This person doesn't speak a word of English. So I'm speaking, we're singing, and, and, and there's nothing in it that they can understand. But that guest who doesn't understand a word of our language could understand the universal language of the Lord's Supper. Imagine you travel overseas and you're with the body of Christ and you can't understand a word of what they're saying. And I've been there. That's not an easy thing. But we can all understand this. It's something God's people everywhere do as a proclamation of the gospel. It's a way of proclaiming Jesus. Uh, thirdly, it promotes unity in the gospel. First Corinthians 11 Paul rebukes the church for coming to the table with divisions among them, with conflict. You see, what's the word we use to describe the Lord's Supper? Communion, which means we share something in, in common together. It's, it's a union together. It's a way of declaring our unity in Christ. It's what we pray for, the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Communion is a display of that. It's a declaration that we are one in Christ. And also that we should repent of gossip, bitterness, slander, grumbling, backbiting, harmful relationships, lack of self-control. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So the Lord's Supper is a reminder that we are one body and that in sharing the body and blood of Christ in the Supper, we're united, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, through one Lord, one faith, one baptism, because there's one meal. Fourthly, the Lord's Supper grows us in the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He goes on to say, you can't take part of the Lord's table and the table of demons. In other words, the Lord's Supper is for our growth in Christ's likeness and growth in hating sin. This is why Baptists, after the Protestant Reformation, 17th century, they outlined what they believed about the Lord's Supper, and they said, it's for the confirmation of our faith. It's for our spiritual nourishment and our growth in Christ. So, there's no saving faith, there's no saving grace in anything but faith in Christ. Whether that's a, a, a good work, like good works, or like baptism, the Lord's Supper, or anything attempting to be any of those things. But there is growing, sanctifying grace for us in the word, in prayer, in worship, including the Lord's Supper. So you might sum it up this way. You could say in life that exercise and a healthy diet don't guarantee you a long life, but they tend to lead to physical health. And in the same way, word, prayer, 
worship, including the Lord's Supper, lead toward spiritual health. So there's nothing inherent in the bread or the cup. But we do understand that if you read your Bible and pray, you tend to grow as a Christian. The same is true with the Lord's Supper. When coupled with the word, prayer, and worship, it's not a magic pill or a magic token, but it is a component, one part of healthy discipleship. You see, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the good news that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for sinners. The only thing that disqualifies us from eating it is a failure to trust Jesus and repent of our sin. So today as we close, let's thank God for the body and blood of Jesus and also for this reminder of the grace of Christ in the Lord's Supper.